Welcome to Rain's podcast with Carmen Medina. Carmen is former CIA Deputy Director of Intelligence and has 32 years of experience in the U.S. intelligence community. We are excited to have her here to discuss the international order and challenges to the international order as we know it from a macro perspective. Carmen, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you. I wanted to start by discussing, during the Cold War, there was the idea of the battle of the hearts and minds for people between the communist vision put forth by the Soviet Union and the liberal democratic ideals of the West. Are we seeing a Cold War-style battle for the hearts and minds of disillusioned Muslims today? Well, I guess you could say that we are seeing a battle for the hearts and minds of disillusioned Muslims, uh, although it's unclear how large that disillusioned population is. And of course, if you think about the Muslim community as including Indonesia, which of course it doesn't, and Malaysia, there's you know clearly the overwhelming majority of people of the Muslim faith have accepted uh, most of the tenets of modern society. So I guess we're really battling for the hearts and minds of frustrated and disappointed, mostly men, mostly Muslim young men, and uh, and that's you know that's a very difficult situation dynamic because it's occurred in other periods in history where you have sort of a, uh, a frustrated uh, male population and, and, and they sort of battle against the, the system because they're not getting what they think that they deserve. But I also think that it's, you know, it's, you know, phrasing this as, is this the thing that's following the Cold War? If we had the Cold War, that was a battle of, of hearts and minds, and now we're having this other kind of Cold War thing. I, I, don't, I, I don't think that's the right question. I think really the dynamic, most important issue in international relations right now is the transition of a world order that was dominated by this Western perspective to one that is going to be much more heterogeneous and one that will, you know, you could say will have to accommodate China and the rest of Asia, but you know, actually China will make its own space whether we choose to accommodate them or not. And that I think is actually, if you were to pull a thread through what's going on and what's important, I think that's the issue that's most important. So I guess if that's not the driver of the conversation about the future world order, China has a bigger role. Is China more in discourse with the U.S. or is China, where is the conversation taking place between China and? That's interesting. You know, so China, you know, it, 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 when you think about China, one thing is you have to follow the money, right? So where China, China is investing, where its economic activity is going, uh, I think is very telling. And so, of course, uh, is it, am, I, am I right that the EU is now China's greatest trading partner, or is it that the other way around? That that uh, the EU is the, the trade between EU and China right. is very important, right? And obviously, the Chinese have made significant moves to invest in Africa and in Latin America. And now, of course, uh, they're engaged in sort of uh, remaking the Silk Road, right? And so, I think that. China, you know, up until the election of uh, President Trump, uh, I think China's 
saw that it had to maintain a very strong relationship slash quasi-partnership with the U.S., but now that President Trump, as the latest, I think, Pew Research poll showed, has led pretty much every country in the world to lose a certain amount of faith in U.S. leadership, I think China now may realize that it doesn't need to cater to the U.S. as much as it emerges as a, as a strong power and that it actually, you know, it's sort of like it's playing a multilateral game. It's almost like it's a round-robin tournament and, and now it really needs to play every team, every nation and not yet just the U.S. So I think what's interesting is sort of there may be this vacuum of U.S. leadership in the region. Um, I highly doubt that President Trump has even thought about recently there's like the Asian development thing, had their big conference, they don't even have an ambassador to that. I don't think Trump has really thought through what U.S. leadership looks like in Asia. And China is kind of stepping up to the plate in the sense that they're coming up with the Asian infrastructure investment thing, Mm -hmm. One Belt, One Road Initiative. These are started in 2013, so, you know, the project has been competing, but it seems like there's more of an opportunity now given the political dynamic. Many U.S. observers, however, are still skeptical of these institutions because they believe they'll be unfair, um, not transparent, favor Chinese firms, and so on. And these are non, uh, these are very suspect in the sense that they're non-transparent. And then they give non-democratic regimes other options. Like, you know, they would have had to go to World Bank, IMF, Asian Development Bank with their stringent conditions and Mm -hmm. all of that attached. China says that their institutions can still uphold the same rules of fairness and transparency. Um, well, I was kind of sorry, I wanted to start the discussion. What are your thoughts on Chinese motivations, first of all, for these new institutions? Well, I mean, I think, you know, I, not that it's that important a piece of evidence, but I did visit China for the first time in the fall uh, for a couple of weeks, and I was struck by the strong sense, the strong aspirational energy in the society. And I think that matters in countries. And uh, one of our uh, tour guides that we spoke to, uh, he said, you know, I know China's not perfect, but I'm also persuaded that we're headed in the right direction. I know the government's not, not perfect, but I believe we're headed in the right direction. And so I think that China, I think that, you know, my sense of the people in China is that they want China to succeed, they want it to play on a larger world stage, and so I think, I think sort of the uh, aggressive or assertive foreign policy that China has is kind of part of the strategy for the Chinese Communist Party to stay legitimate, to stay relevant, you know. As, you know, the last thing that the Chinese Communist Party can afford is to be seen as static by, by the Chinese people. They have to be seen as moving forward, as long as they're seen as moving forward and taking China to a bigger and better place, I think that the people are going to support them. Now, there are direct reasons why they're doing what they're doing. I think that, uh, I know just from a, a financial uh, perspective that these overland route roads, you know, recreating the the Silk Road actually is a smart thing to do in terms of the transport of goods, and uh, that it will lower costs and uh, get them away from some of the choke points that occur. So I think that that's smart, and I think that. Uh, 
you know, they recognize, for example, that if you look at demographic uh, projections of world population, that most of the markets where China sells its goods are going to have declining populations and therefore declining demand. Two of their neighbors, Pakistan and Bangladesh, are on the hit parade of countries with really significant growth still in population, along with Africa. So it just makes sense for Chinese companies to be looking to establish themselves in these parts of the world. Right. I want to, I think you make a really great point that I haven't really seen in the discussion as much about for China, I think it does come back to domestic politics. It is about mm-hmm. the Communist Party right. needing to maintain power, maintain control, maintain legitimacy. Right. And I think that, that was a really great point that I haven't seen coming through as much, but legitimacy, well, I like just you said. Think that, that, you know, it just matters when uh, people feel that they're moving forward on something. I, I really think that it makes an impact. And I think that you know, that's a little something that uh, Donald Trump tapped into, this sense in America that maybe we weren't aspirational anymore, and therefore his slogan, Make America Great Again. Right. I kind of wanted you to weigh in sort of on what, like, China comes back. So China says that they can be just as good as all these Western institutions, and even though they're coming in late, because they're coming in late to the game, they can learn from, you know, mistakes and so on. But the rule of law is not even enshrined within China domestically. Is it possible for them to export those same standards that Western institutions have spent decades developing? Well, no, they're not going to be able to export the same standards, but whatever standards they do export will probably be good enough. I was talking to someone who does uh, a lot of work in China, and he was talking about, the, you know, that the Chinese, it, so the point I'm making here is that it's unrealistic for the West to expect Asia to have or talk or describe standards in the same way that we do. And that's part of the accommodation that's going to have to occur as the Chinese role in the world plays out. So this person who is familiar with Chinese was talking about how there are so many phrases in Chinese that we don't have in the U.S., that the way they think about concepts that um, uh, is so different. So one that I remember, he says corruption, that the Chinese word for corruption is going in the back door. Now, going in the back door doesn't have quite the horrible connotation as uh, the way we think about corruption, for example. So I think, you know, famously, uh, Chinese culture is about relationship, it's about community, it's about advancing together. And I think that, you know, for, for certainly for countries in Asia and perhaps even for other countries that they're going to uh, reach out to, countries in Africa, this idea of basing things on a, a more community and relationship-based metric is going to actually seem more natural to these countries than the kind of legal framework that the West uh, is is so fond of. Yeah. So I don't, you know, so my the kind of a long-winded answer, but. No, I don't think they're going to be able to export the same framework, but in the end, I don't think it's going to matter. So international institutions with Chinese characteristics. I think that that's what, what, you're, what you're going to get. I think that, that's, that it's going to evolve. It'll take time. Um, I think the West 
I thought the U.S. has an important role, I think, in mentoring the Chinese uh, uh, in, along these lines. But if we choose not to, I think that 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 you know people are going to be attracted to the opportunities that they provide, the Chinese provide. As a side note or kind of a tangent, like overall, like what do you think of effectiveness of Western institutions? These are they still credible? How are they seen around the world? Are they where are their weaknesses well, and strengths? You know, people have been criticizing institutions like the World Bank and the IMF for a couple of decades now, right? So the bloom is off the rose on them. People have been criticizing the United Nations for a very long time, more than a couple of decades. I think one of the problems we have in society generally, and in government in particular, is that we create institutions and then expect them to last forever, and expect that energy to continue forever and their relevance to continue forever. And we do ourselves great harms as societies, as businesses, as government, when the uh, sell by, when we don't honor the sell by date of an institution or, or an organization. Um, you know, the Bretton Woods uh, institutions were developed, what, 70 years ago? Um, there should be no expectation that they're going to last forever. Uh, it might really be interesting to see what uh, a new set of institutions would look like that better accommodated the world as it is today. Um, you know, the uh, neoliberal consensus that the IMF in particular has been associated with has been called into question. So I think Western institutions, you know, the, I think the time has come to rethink them and I think we'll get a better outcome if the West joins in sort of the rethink rather than just fight it. True. That's probably difficult for U.S. leaders to accept after having been, you know, to, at the top of the world. It is. Figuratively speaking, I know, in terms right? of writing the rules and so on. So definitely right. it's going to be hard. But it's but funny, you know, the history of the U.S. is funny because, you know, we have only accepted this mantle of world leadership after World War II, and, and it, it happened in large part because we were the only significant world economy left standing, right? And before then, we had, generally speaking, the consensus was that we had no desire yeah. to engage in world leadership. And so, um, you know, and as the election of President Trump showed, and that's one of the things that he ran on, that there is a, you know, probably close to a majority of the American people who are fine with the U.S. not exhibiting world leadership, yeah. or so they think. So I do want to turn to that part of the yes. question. Uh, so turning to other disruptors, the, the international order as we know it, we have here in the U.S. a president who does not follow established diplomatic protocols and violates international norms. How do you think the international order will respond to the impetuousness of President Donald Trump? And what are the chances that over the next four years, the U.S. will become increasingly marginalized and discredited? Well, um, you know, of, uh, there's lots of things that uh, President Trump does that I, I don't agree with, but I do find myself enjoying and in many ways agreeing with his uh, tendency not to view international norms as something sacred mm -hmm. 
that must, you know, always be obeyed. I think there are a lot of ways that we think about foreign policy that are outdated. And and just the, the very fact that he engages in social media and is, for the most part, so media savvy, I think, you know, that recognition of using modern communication tools to advance your policy, that's long overdue from the uh, perspective of international diplomacy and international institutions. Uh, so I think that some of that is effective and some of that is necessary. I think it's leading to a really interesting uh, dynamic in Europe where I wonder really whether or not uh, President Macron would have been elected without the sort of dynamic that was caused by the election of Donald Trump. And I'm really fascinated by Macron's invitation of Trump to come to France on Bastille Day because it appears to be a master ninja move of some kind, which I, I, I can't interpret yet, right? But, you know, the Macron's election, Theresa May's uh, very poor showing in the election, in the snap election, and uh, Merkel's, I think, uh, apparent renaissance. You know, a year ago, people were sort of counting her out in Germany, and now she appears uh, to be relishing this new role as a world leader. So I think it might, I mean, so I'm going to say that it might have this odd, uh, unexpected effect of strengthening Europe and creating a Europe, more of, as I mentioned earlier, a Europe-China alliance. Um, you know, I don't think that the U.S. can be marginalized or discredited. I mean, I, I, I really do think that there's, the U.S. is still too important economically for the world, clearly, and it still represents something aspirational. Uh, for the world. Uh, but I think that, you know, at, at the end of a Trump presidency, if the current trends continue, the tendency for the world to look to the U.S. for leadership will have declined. And we'll leave it up to history to determine whether or not that was a good or bad thing at this moment. I wanted to make a quick point that I think I find really fascinating in modern history is the interplay of elections mm -hmm. because of how quickly information travels. Yes. Starting from Brexit and like just a whole cascade of like, you know, right. you're, you're trying to find patterns and trends and right. I think that's just possible because of the modern world, the communications world we live in. And sort of, I wanted to ask, push back a little bit sort of on the question about like social media, you know, that Trump yes. is doing. Right. Sort of being generally a skeptic of the uh -huh. role of the public uh -huh. and foreign policy making, I just wanted to I can't to follow that. you on Twitter. <laughs> I want to just pull that line a little bit. And I was me. thinking, I, I do follow you on Twitter. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, is would be trying to, is trying to reach the public with this messaging. Is that, how is that affecting policy making? Would it make it more or less efficient? You know, I think that it, in certain situations, it's a plus. And in other situations, it's definitely a negative. Uh, I remember when Trump was elected and people were saying, well, he'll, he'll have to stop using Twitter. And I said, no, he won't. I just believe that he recognizes it as such a powerful weapon. I mean, you know, for a, a world leader to be able to, in an unfiltered way, communicate with everyone is a huge thing. It does, however, pose like a security risk that people have been talking about, where 
you can actually, that's what I would be doing, and mm-hmm. I, I know for a fact, well, I don't know for a fact, but I'm, I'm positive that other governments are doing this, where they're tracking how the government behaves against what they know based on the content of his tweets, and they're going to develop some insight. Um, but I think, um, you know, in a, in a moment of, uh, you know, national emergency where something horrible happens, uh, that perhaps using this, this pulpit now, the bully pulpit, which Twitter is, could have a, a positive effect. So, for example, you just saw a little bit of that last week, or maybe it was the week before, when Trump said, he had tweeted, that we know Syria is planning another uh, chemical attack, and you better not. And I thought that was interesting, because that, that's actually, uh, you know, rather than have kind of like this back-channel conversation where the diplomat says, hey, we know you're planning something, which, you know what, I think actually publicizing it that way is a more effective way to go. There do come the reputation cost of that. There is, there is. And it's possible you could burn your sources right. in mm-hmm. the uh, intelligence parlance by doing that. But it, it's kind of an interesting play and, and, and an example of how maybe good things could come of breaking some of the rules that we've associated with international diplomacy mm-hmm. and foreign relations. Right. So. Moving on, next subject and our theme of disruption of the international order. Another change is the increased role of women that we're seeing. Uh-huh. And I want to ask about how you think an increased focus on women's issues can contribute to security around the world. Yeah, you know, this is something that the Obama administration certainly uh, focused on. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of interest that uh, focused on, which is the uh, that if women have a greater role to play in a society and if they are more involved that they will be, the society will be better off as well. That when women are better off, the society is better off. And um, I, re- I was reading some interesting research the other day that uh, I guess in, in sub-Saharan African countries that men are usually the ones who uh, buy the seeds or have access to seeds to plant in agriculture, but it's women who do the actual farming and someone was saying, I don't know how they came up with this figure, but that if women actually got the seeds in the first place, that the uh, agricultural output would improve by double digits, which I thought was like, well, that's, that's I'm not sure exactly the, the method they, they, they had for doing this, but that was really interesting. And I think that, you know, women are a huge, like 50% plus of society and yet we often don't think about women in terms of uh, when we develop a foreign policy strategy. So I'll give you an example, North Korea. So all the end game scenarios in North Korea are difficult, right? And, uh, and I wonder whether or not we thought of how we could, first, how the women in North Korea would influence what goes on in their society and how we could craft messages that would appeal to them. Uh, China, another interesting society that where women, you know, have historically had a lot of influence, right? Okay. Uh, and understanding 
how you know like when we 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 assess how does the how do the Chinese people feel about the Chinese government it that's kind of like a vague thing you know we never really actually go in to see how the Chinese women might feel whether or not there's a difference and how that might operationalize itself as the society develops uh, so I think there's you know a, a lot more that we can do to understand, you know, and by the way, business knows this. Business has learned to market to women, right? They know that women make the most significant buying decisions in households, right? Yeah. So, so our audience knows this, but the sad truth is that when we make foreign policy or think about strategies for countries, uh, we, we're not we're almost never thinking about the women in that society. And I think it'd be interesting uh, to imagine what, how foreign policy might be different if we thought more about women. Speaking of businesses being on top of it, uh, for my last question, I wanted to ask about any advice you'd have for businesses navigating what is now a very politically polarized environment. I'm looking if you have any thoughts on key indicators business leaders should keep a pulse on and or what surprises they should be preparing for. Well, if I, if I were uh, a business leader, I would be uppermost interested in diversifying the sources of information. So I imagine that business leaders, like the, the same way that government diplomats tend to talk to other government diplomats, that business leaders will tend to talk to other business leaders. And you'll hear a lot of the, you know, the same worldview, I imagine. So I think it's very important for, let's say, for uh, American business leaders, not just to hear from their Chinese counterparts, but to have a method for understanding how Chinese society is evolving as well. So, you know, the bike sharing movement sort of took off in China all of a sudden. Uh, that's perhaps something that Chinese businessmen didn't anticipate, but it was a, a bottom-up kind of activity. So I would look for ways in every country to become familiar, to diversify my sources of information. As far as indicators are concerned, generally speaking, I like to be on the edge. The nuttier, crazier, sometimes even more obscure source of information, the more interesting I find it. I'll give you an example about Saudi Arabia. And useful, I find it. There was a, a Comic-Con in Saudi Arabia. You know that thing where everybody comes dressed up as right. comic book characters. And um, they had the first one ever in Saudi Arabia. And men and women mixed in costume, were mixing in costume totally in contravention to the rules of Saudi society, and I thought, well, now that is really interesting. That's telling me that there's some energy going on in Saudi Arabia that's not controlled by the government. And so in a way, when the crown prince, the, apparently the reformist crown prince took over, I mean, I didn't predict that, but I was like, it was consistent with my having noticed the Comic-Con conference, that there's some there's a modernizing energy going on in Saudi Arabia that um, is, is, is grassroots that we're not fully aware of. 
Um, so one of the things, you know, if I were a, a business person and I were sending uh, a team to open markets in Saudi Arabia or Iran or China or Pakistan, I would have them read fiction from those countries, watch the TV shows of those countries, uh, uh, the movies from those countries. I, I mean, I would, I would spend a lot of time doing that, of course, trying to get them to learn the language. Because I think, you know, what, what, what the age that we are in in the 21st century is the age where classic institutions are not, do not, do not have a monopoly over the instruments of power that the information revolution, the digital revolution, the internet now allows people to mobilize in ways that are unexpected and occur very quickly. And if you're a business and you don't understand that about the environment you're in, you, you may have great relations with the Ministry of Commerce, but you still could end up uh, losing a lot of money if you're not paying attention to those kinds of factors. Thank you so much for joining Thank us you. today, Carmen, and all, all the right. insights you shared with us. Um, again, this is Carmen Medina, and thank you for listening. Thank you.